Good evening. What do Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, and O.J. Simpson all have in common? They're all celebrities who fell hard. They went from the penthouse to the outhouse almost overnight. And they're not the only ones. There is no shortage of famous and powerful people in America who were once a sweetheart and then became the most hated, all because of personal indiscretion that became public. Many of these same celebrities had endorsement deals. They would lend their face and their fame to companies wanting to use their likeness to sell their product. And oftentimes these companies were the first to jump ship when one of these celebrities ran afoul of the law. And this is certainly understandable. I mean, a company doesn't want to use the likeness of someone who by the court of public opinion or even by you know, the law itself uh, has been convicted of a crime or maybe just public perception doesn't favor them any longer. Whether it's O.J. Simpson or Matt Lauer or any celebrity, the court of public opinion makes its mind up long before a jury does oftentimes, which is why advertisers drop these famous folks like a bad habit. When you represent someone, you represent everything about that person or that company or whatever it may be. God created humanity to represent Him in the world. We are all His image bearers. Paul stated it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are walking billboards for Jesus. We are God's advertisement. Jesus himself labeled us as lights in the world. We are the only part of God's creation that bears his stamp. Birds, cows, worms, ticks, they are not made in his image. Not trees, not mountains, not clouds, not stars, only us. But as you know, we might be called distorted image bearers. God lovingly created mankind to display His glory through enjoyment of Him. And in a world without sin, that would certainly be the case. However, as the story of the Bible unfolds, we see that humanity chose rebellion over God's reign. That story is still unfolding. And guess who gets to live and tell it? You and I do. We are all image bearers, no matter how distorted we may be. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 8, it reads like this. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Story is told of two older men who were pushing their carts through Walmart and they collided with one another by accident. And the first man says to the second gentleman, I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. I'm looking for my wife. And the second gentleman says, what a coincidence. I'm looking for mine as well. And the first gentleman says, well, what does your wife look like? I'll help you find her. And the second gentleman says, well, she's tall and slender. She has long blonde hair, beautiful, you know, blue eyes, a, a, a wonderful figure. He says, what does your wife look like? And the first guy says, doesn't matter. Let's look for yours. You know, it's, uh, 
whatever it is, whether it's, uh, you know, a wallet or, or keys or our temper, we've all lost something at some time or another in our lives. Losing things can be highly frustrating, perhaps even devastating, depending on what it is. It wouldn't be very difficult to lose a small coin in a Palestinian home. The houses were very dark. If they had a window, it was usually a small circular window to light the place. The floor was hardened earth covered with reeds. And so looking for a small coin would kind of been like looking for a needle in a haystack. And so this woman is sweeping the floor, hoping to catch a glint of the coin or maybe hear it clang as it moved. And the coin in question was a silver drachma, which was worth a a one day's wage for a working person in Palestine. You see, in Palestine in this, this time, very little stood between a person and real hunger. So this woman's diligent search may have been out of sheer necessity. If she didn't find the coin, maybe her family didn't eat. Or there may have been a different reason. You see, the mark of a married woman was a headdress made of of ten coins linked together by a silver chain. And it may take a girl many years of saving and scraping by in order to accumulate the coins needed to make this headdress. And this headdress would have been the equivalent of a wedding ring. It was highly valuable. It could not be taken away from a woman for any reason, not even to pay off a debt. And so you can imagine the heartache and the motivation to find the lost coin. It it might be like a a woman in this day and age setting her wedding ring on the sink while she washed dishes and accidentally hitting it and it falling down the drain. And so she fishes for it, but she can't get it. And so she takes the pipe apart from under the sink, hoping to find her ring because maybe the ring isn't all that valuable, but the reason for it is the fact that it represents the union between her and her husband gives it astronomical value in her mind. Maybe that is closely akin to what this woman was doing as she looked for her her small coin. Maybe it has something to do with what she was feeling. In either case, the coin was obviously valuable for she turned the house upside down in an effort to find it. And when she did find it, when she held it in her hand again, she rejoiced. A, A celebration ensued. And Jesus said that God is like that. That there is joy in one sinner found similar to the joy of finding a lost coin, the coin that stood between a woman and starvation. Like a woman who loses her most precious possession and finds it again, such is the joy of God for the lost soul that is restored. Even though the coin was lost, it had not lost its value. Even the religious leaders during this time would have seen this coin as having intrinsic value because it had the image of the emperor stamped upon it. That in and of itself made the coin worth something. Like the coin, the soul of man bears the image of God. We were made in his image. We are his creation. And no matter what value anyone else may put on your soul, it is worth everything to God. In a sinful state, the soul has lost its proper use and service for which it was created, yet it still has worth and it's still recoverable as well. You know, the story of the Bible didn't end with Adam and Eve. Although the image of God has been distorted, there's more to this story. God is a God of renewal and restoration, and He has set in motion a path for reconciliation for distorted image bearers like you and me. We call this the gospel.
and a major theme of the gospel is found within the Trinity. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, it reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, of, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You ever wonder what God was doing before the creation of the universe? You know, it's kind of one of those questions that, you know, a small child asks. You know, it puts a, a parent, you know, uh, baby backs a parent in the corner as they're trying to figure out the answer to questions like these. You know, Augustine once said, you know, when you ask a question like what God was doing before he created the universe, Augustine responded he was preparing hell for people to ask those kind of questions. You know, a lot of times we hear questions from our kids that we don't really have an answer for, and sometimes we have questions that we don't really have an answer for, and maybe this is one of them. What was God doing before the creation of the universe? Well, I think the Trinity teaches us that before God created the universe, He was having fellowship with His own being. Jesus died to save us from our sins, but that's not all. The gospel finds its place in the bigger narrative of Scripture as a means of restoring the relationship that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Yes, Jesus came in the flesh to spearhead God's rescue mission, but this was all about relationship. It, it wasn't just about getting us to heaven. It was about getting us closer to Him. And of course, this closeness would culminate in us ruling and reigning with the Heavenly Father forever and ever. One of the things made in His image means is that man was made to be in relationship. Humans are relational beings. There is a vertical and a horizontal aspect to our lives. If you look at the cross, you have a vertical beam that points towards heaven in our relationship with God. You also have a horizontal beam that points to both sides of mankind, which was talking about our relationship with others. So you have this vertical and horizontal aspect. This is the very heart of the gospel, loving God and loving others. Yes, our Heavenly Father created a good world and filled it with good things for us to enjoy. He set laws in place to provide structure and boundaries. But the chief aim of life is to know God and to be known by God. God did all of this because He wants a loving relationship with us. He desires, above all else, for all of us to find our purpose, our fulfillment, our delight, our very life in a relationship with Him. And you know, folks, I'm afraid that that too many of us have kind of missed that over the years. I know of churches that have eliminated certain verses in their hymn books that talk about the Holy Spirit. Like a song that we often sing, Father, we love you, we worship and adore you, glorify thy name in all the earth. The last verse is often removed from being sung in congregations, stricken from the hymn book. The verse that says, Spirit, we love you. We worship and adore you. Why is that? Why is this verse removed? I mean, maybe it's because that uh, we don't want to appear to be too charismatic. You know, the Holy Spirit is an it, and it makes us uncomfortable, right? We don't, we don't like to talk about it much for fear of being labeled too charismatic. We have no problem with God. We have no problem with Jesus. But the Holy Spirit, uh, that's a little bit too mysterious for us. We don't really understand it. We don't want to be accused of someone who believes in speaking in tongues and handling snakes and stuff like that. But the Godhead, the Trinity, 
is meant to be understood in terms of oneness, threeness, and three in oneness. You remove any one of those three from the equation, and you become completely unbiblical in your approach. Just because we may not understand all that there is to know about the person or a person of the Godhead, it doesn't mean that we ignore it. Rather, we seek to learn as much about that personality as we can. We take that approach with God. We take that approach with Jesus. We strive to learn as much as we can about them and apply it to our lives. So why not the Spirit? Let's stop taking our cues from the religious world around us. And let's dig deeper into Scripture. It's highly important for us to come to grips with the difference that the Trinity makes in our lives. You know, I've told you before that I, I'm terrible at math. And actually, that's an understatement because when I go to a restaurant and figure the tip, I still use my fingers. I, I'm not good at math, especially higher math. When I was in high school and I took geometry or algebra, I did awful in those classes, mainly because I, I didn't engage like I should because I didn't understand it. And for me, I thought, why even try? I'm never going to get this. In fact, when I, when I looked at choosing a career, I made a point to say, if it has anything to do with higher math, I'm not going to be involved in that career. I'm going to pick something else. And if there's ever a situation in life where I have to use algebra or something like that, I, I'm out. I, I don't want anything to do with higher math. I don't want us to look at the Trinity that way. I don't want this to be an academic exercise with no real relevance for us personally. Understanding the Godhead can sort of be like understanding higher math for some people. It's difficult, so we kind of disengage. But there are real personal benefits to getting intimately acquainted with the Trinity. And it's stuff that will benefit you for the rest of your life. For example, the Trinity shapes our prayer life. We pray to God through the Son and by the Spirit. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, as part of the model prayer, Jesus instructs his disciples, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our prayer is to God, and Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So we pray to God, and we do so in Jesus' name, which means by the authority of Jesus Christ. In his name is a prayer of surrender. It's a prayer that says, Your will be done. But there are times when we don't know what to pray. There are times when we can't form the words and we don't know what to pray. And so we need guidance. And Paul said, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18, Paul says, For through him, Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So prayer is through Jesus, in the Spirit, and to God. Now, this doesn't mean that we cannot address Jesus in prayer. In fact, the Bible is replete with passages that talk about how we can address the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer. It only makes sense that if the Godhead is made up of three distinct personalities that are all one, then wouldn't it, it wouldn't be wrong to address Jesus in prayer, nor would it be wrong to address the Spirit in prayer. Really, any prayer addressed to God is ultimately addressed to Jesus and the Holy Spirit anyway. What applies to one? Whether it be prayer or worship applies to all because they are one. 
To communicate with one is to communicate with all. But I think a good way to consider the, the Trinity when it comes to prayer is that we pray to God through the Son and in the Spirit. Secondly, the, the Trinity shapes our salvation. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, then we aren't saved. If Jesus is not God, then we're in a world of trouble. If Christ were merely human or even slightly less than being fully God, then his death is nothing more than a martyr's death. It is nothing more than the story of a good man who meant well but died in the end. Only one who was fully man and fully God could suffer as a man and as the Son of God at the same time. So the Godhead means everything to our salvation. Jesus and God are one. And when Jesus ascended back into heaven, he left the Holy Spirit as the comforter, the counselor, the guide. So then we have the Trinity shaping our fellowship as well. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live in perfect harmony. They are a model for Christian life within the church. God doesn't want Lone Ranger Christians. He never expected us to practice Christianity by ourselves on an island. The church was established, at least in part, so that Christians could have this dynamic social network. For the purpose of caring for one another, sharing with one another, bearing one another's burdens, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. All those wonderful one another passages that Paul elaborates on throughout Scripture. God is a God of relationships. And He wants a relationship with us and He wants us to have meaningful relationships with other people. The Christian life is all about personal fellowship with a triune God and with the people he created. 1 John 1 and 3 reads, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John speaks of fellowship on three levels. You have fellowship with the brethren, fellowship with God, and fellowship with the Son. All three persons of the Godhead were involved in your creation, and all three persons of the Godhead are involved in your salvation as well. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in intimate, personal fellowship with you at your baptism. You are the church. You need the church. You need God. You need Jesus. You need the Holy Spirit. You need this fellowship. So never underestimate the power of fellowship. Many years ago, Bette Midler came out with a song entitled, From a Distance. You may remember the chorus, God is watching us, God is watching us from a distance. But is he really? Is that all God is doing? Is God just sitting up in heaven watching us from a distance and otherwise uninvolved and uninterested? You see, I, I think God is sometimes seen like a bag of Jolly Ranchers. And the flavor you choose just depends on what your personal taste is. You have the vanilla God. The vanilla God is the one who created the universe. He set it in motion, and then he took a nap. You know, he wakes up every now and then to check on things, but otherwise he's, he's distant, he's disinterested, he's not involved. Then you have the red-hot cinnamon God, and he's a God that's always mad. He's constantly watching everyone from up above, waiting to strike you dead for doing something wrong. He gets redder and redder the more you disobey. You better cross every T and dot every I or else. And then you have the apricot-flavored God. This is the God who only gets involved when you ask him to. He's there to bail you out, but otherwise he doesn't care much. He's there for you when you pray for your favorite team to win. When you've messed up and you can't fix it yourself. 
Apricot is not a flavor that everyone likes, and, and this God may or may not like you or be concerned with your well-being. It just depends on whether He bails you out or blesses you or not. The God of the Bible is not like any of these, of course, and the Godhead shows us this. The God of the Bible is Father, He is Son, He is Holy Spirit, three divine personalities, but only one holy God. And these three divine persons share unity and joy and love and peace and fellowship. And when the Bible talks about children of God being in Christ, it means that we get to take part in this divine relationship. This means that you are no longer an outsider or a stranger. You are a favored guest. You are also one of the kids. You're in the household. You share in the community of believers, but you are granted access to the Godhead. And God is not out there somewhere distant and uninvolved. We are in Christ. We now have access to the throne room of God. And the Holy Spirit is not only near, He dwells within us and that image that we are originally stamped with is now more apparent than ever we're, we're not just saved this isn't just about a change of location when we die we've been adopted we've been purchased and the trinity is at the heart of all of it the father loves us so much that he sent his son to to shed his blood so that we could have a relationship with the heavenly father and the holy spirit is given to us at baptism to guide us in our growth and development. You see, you don't have to wait until heaven. That's how we often think, well, if I can just you know, make it through, if I can just hang on, heaven's going to be a lot better. But that's a glitch in the way of thinking. Christians have long believed and taught that the physical is bad and decaying, while the spiritual is good, and, and that's what we should cling to, and it's really just a form of Gnosticism when you, when you consider it. You'll remember that Gnosticism was a heresy that the early Christians were forced to combat. Gnostics believed that there was a huge difference between spiritual and material things. Spiritual things were regarded as inherently pure, while material things were intrinsically evil. Gnostics also believed that the spiritual part of a person was their true identity and they inhabited a body in a world that was regarded as evil. And through the years, Christians have kind of aligned themselves with this philosophy, even though they probably didn't attend to. The Bible actually teaches something quite different. The way the word spiritual is used is not typically the way that it is presented in the New Testament. In the Greek, spiritual is pneumaticos. And virtually every time this word is used, it means animated, empowered by God's Spirit or influenced. And Paul almost always uses pneumaticos in contrast with sarkaikos, which means fleshly or carnal. And sarkaikos is not the same thing as physical, at least in the way that we think of it. The way Paul used carnal was in relation to things or people that were passing away, or even sinful. So according to Paul's way of thinking, things are either empowered by the Spirit of God, or they're empowered by the weakness of human effort. And you can go back and you can read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 sometime, and see that Paul contrasts pneumaticos, spiritual, with sukaikos, or natural. And he states that our current bodies are indeed natural, and our resurrection bodies will be spiritual. But Paul does not mean one is material and the other is not. He means that our current body is natural in the sense that it is mortal and subject to decay, while the resurrection body is going to be spiritual because it's going to be transformed by the Spirit of God. And therefore, it will be immortal and imperishable. Now look, uh, a mature Christian who walks in the, in the Spirit, is both. 
know, they have a body, they have a spirit, they are spiritual and physical, and both are obviously good. However, a person is not spiritual if they are not animated, influenced, or empowered by the Spirit of God. But even then, he doesn't cease to be physical. I mean, obviously, he still has a physical body. The carnal individual is one who is not influenced by the Spirit, but rather is influenced by the world. That's the contrast that Paul makes. So we need to stop contrasting spiritual with physical. Instead, we contrast spiritual with carnal or natural. The spiritual individual is animated by the Spirit, while the carnal or natural is weak and thus subject to death. Why does any of this matter? Well, because if you are in Christ, you have fellowship with the Godhead and the Spirit is directing your steps. And that in turn means that you enjoy immeasurable blessings right here, right now, not just in the future. Heaven will be far greater, yes, but that doesn't mean that there's not pleasure and enjoyment now by being in Christ. You are image bearers. You are walking billboards. You are the laborers in the vineyard, and you are a people filled with hope, even though we can be distorted image bearers at times. Think about this as we close. When you were lost in sin, God acted in every person of his being to save you. The Father sent His only begotten Son. The Son offered Himself as a sacrifice for your sins. And the Holy Spirit aids us in the sanctification process. Every person of the Godhead is participating in salvation of an individual. So that we, the saved individual, can have a relationship with the Godhead. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we've had to worship you. We pray, God, that we can expand our understanding of the Trinity and what it means to serve God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, to be in relationship with the Godhead. Help us, Lord, to be more like your Son, to follow in his footsteps. May we be led by the Spirit. And may we seek to do your will always. We love you, God. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.